Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The big data point, the big trading cue for markets worldwide comes in 90 minutes time. It's U.S. inflation data, which drops alongside U.S. retail sales. And I'm really pleased to walk us through it. We've got John Riding, the founder of RDQ Economics, with us around a table in New York. Is it the most important inflation print ever, John Riding? <laughs> in a word, no. In a word, no. And honestly, as concerned as I am in the medium term about the inflation potential, with trillion dollar fiscal deficits and policy, monetary policy still too easy. This backup in bond yields has not been primarily an inflation story. We've moved up um, five eighths of the move up in bond yields has been on higher real yields, not on inflation break evens. And inflation break evens are still below the Fed's inflation target at 2.08% on CPI. So the, 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 sto the story that this, this whole problems in the market has been this fear about inflation to me yeah. it seems fundamentally wrong. And therefore, and, and the number this morning, you know, probably show inflation receding slightly because of difficult comparisons in January of last year. Well, some people are just reflecting on the payrolls number of a couple of weeks ago and saying that that's the thing that started all of this, the wage figure that came in above expectations. R right. Now, you know, it's funny because everyone's been asking for higher wages, but we have been for two years outlining the arithmetic that if you have higher wages without faster productivity growth, yep. that creates cost issues for companies that if they don't get higher pricing, aka higher inflation, their profit margins will be squeezed, and that will be a problem for the equity market. And as I was saying to Tom earlier, we're in the midst of writing that last Monday and between paragraph three and paragraph four, the equity market dropped 1500 points on the, on the Dow. Yes. Higher wages is a, maybe a problem for the market, but that doesn't necessarily mean higher inflation. We have to break the two things apart. Higher wages are a problem for the equity market. If not accompanied by higher productivity growth. So let's walk through the way the market is positioned right now, ahead of the numbers a little bit later. Is this a market that's more primed over the last couple of weeks for potential inflation surprises, or have we not seen the adjustment that many people think we have? Well, I, I, think, I don't think we're going to get an inflation surprise, but if we were, that would probably be an issue for the market. But it turns out, you know, while we're getting a market, and it's good for economists and, you know, to have a market that's actually responding to economic data at last, which it hadn't done for years, yeah. because for years the, we knew what the Fed was going to do regardless of the economic numbers, d despite the lip service to data dependency. The real numbers and the real position that mattered was positioning on volatility. And the thing about volatility is you know it's too low. You just don't know when it's going to blow up. Okay, I'll, I'll go with that. But you just said something really important is we knew what the Fed would do. Does that imply that we do not know what the Fed will do now? Well, I still think we know what the Fed's going to do at the March meeting. But if you were truly data dependent, exactly, they're data if, dependent. If were, they're slaves to this. If like you were John truly data dependent, you don't know what the Fed's going to do over this year and next year because you don't know what the data is going to be. If you know what the Fed's going to do. <laughs> 
then they're not data dependent. Yeah, and John Farrell, I, I still go back to, you know, there's like those three headlines of a given year. Yeah. One of those headlines was Governor Carney blinking at the Bank of England. He just said, look, here's what we want to do, but we can't do it. Because we're data dependent. But let's be really clear about something. The reason that data dependence didn't matter so much to the market and the reason things were so predictable because the volatility of the data was so low. The data itself was incredibly predictable, John. And I think that's the difference as we come into 2018. Some people are starting to look at the data projections for 2018 and saying this isn't as predictable as it was. And therefore, as a consequence, Federal Reserve policy is also more unpredictable. I don't think the data is any more or less predictable this year than last year. I actually think it's the Fed and a transition to a new Fed chair and a bit of a more hawkish voting membership on the mm -hmm. FOMC. And we're moving into territory where we don't know what the economic, there's no accepted view about what happens when you go to a trillion dollar deficit in a fully employed economy <clears throat> with interest rates that are still that are still low. And so okay. people are revising their views. The view that inflation stays low forever and interest rates right. can't go up very far is no but longer John, the receive view. With the years you and I have known each other, the way that you invented the concept of the putting green and the putting greens moved on the golf course it's almost like a par five in that I guess the third or fourth shot's awfully important versus the first shot. First shot. This is not linear. When does the quadratic nature, the accelerative nature of these Fed rate increases click in? Is it this year or do we even have to wait out to 2019 before the power of their restriction clicks in? Well, I don't think the Fed have tightened yet. If you look exactly. at most indicators, including the equity market, compared to where we were in December of 2015 when the Fed made its first interest rate move, then most indicators show greater financial ease. So the whole point about raising rates is to make policy less accommodative, to tighten, if you like, and, and that hasn't happened. So I, you know, a tightening effect can't click in until policy actually gets John, tighter. Is it? are they tightening in the United Kingdom? I don't see it. Well, I they are. They're, they're starting to raise rates. They're starting to normalize policy. It's what, certainly what, more normalized twice, than it remember. was a year. I mean, they've gone once, but if they go another two times projected over the next 12 yeah, months, but Arthur Burns, Arthur do. Burns would say, we got to go five, six, seven, eight times and let's well, do it, a three. It, it depends what you define as now. tightening. I think for, exactly. for, to John's point, they've hiked interest rates, but financial conditions have not tightened. They've actually loosened right. counterintuitively. And John, I would just wonder whether this is a year that that's a problem for Chairman Powell. Whether actually he wants to get interest rates up, but he also wants to see financial conditions tighten. Right. And, and I, I think so. And, and you know what's interesting is that if you now go around and talk to economists, the number of people who, at least before the equity market dropped last Monday, were writing in four rate hikes for this year. And, and for, we were mavericks, I think. If you go back three or four months, we're talking about four rate hikes for, for 2018. And I think this has been a sort of move, move towards it. So... Um, the Fed have to, at some point, embrace their in their policy the response to the fiscal stimulus. And for a Fed that's been, you know, the only game in town, the fiscal stimulus we we we're now getting at this stage of the economy, I think is pretty much unprecedented. So how does monetary policy respond? Does it really have the same monetary policy? Yeah. I, it, it, that that narrative yeah. has to come out.
Very good. John Redding, thank you so much. I look forward to, uh, particularly as we get to March 21st, really look forward to speaking to you again. John Redding, for years, helping us out at Bloomberg on the Economy and Bloomberg Surveillance with uh, some terrific perspective. He is with RDQ Economics. A monthly visit with Gideon Rose of Foreign Affairs, a magazine. The title this month, Letting Go, Trump, America, and the World. John Farrell, I want you to bring in Gideon. What I love about uh, Foreign Affairs, besides the font, is adult. And you can actually read it, John, uh, when you're a fossil like me, is it is article after article that will make you humble about the knowledge that is necessary. Forever making us smarter. Adam Posen, among others, John Farrell, in this issue. Uh, I always look forward to catching up with Gideon. Gideon Rose, of course, the Foreign Affairs magazine editor. The front page, the headline, letting go, Trump, America, and the world. Gideon, your point a little bit more subtle than that. It's a slow motion letting go. It's happening underneath the surface. It's not happening in clear sight. Walk me through it. Okay, so basically what you have is if you squint from far away, it looks almost like a somewhat conventional Republican administration when it comes to foreign policy, even you could argue in domestic policy. They're backing the defi- you know, they're backing deficit spending to give taxes to rich people and businesses. They're uh, cutting so- social programs domestically. They're uh, uh, boosting the military and they're not necessarily, you know, uh, uh, getting involved in foreign aid and things like that. Okay. But the closer you look, the forms and structures of policy, whether domestically or internationally, are being hollowed out with the substance and purpose draining away. So we're still maintaining all of our very, people are worrying about things like, oh, the leaving the Paris Accord or uh, something like that. But in practice, for the major agreements, we're staying in them. They haven't yet overturned NAFTA. They haven't yet junked the Iran deal. They haven't done a whole bunch of other things they said they were going to do. But they've drained the sense that the U.S. actually cares about the words it's saying out of things. So there's no longer any real concern for human rights or domestic political principles. Um, Everybody now knows that essentially the U.S. is a complete hypocrite when they talk about things like human rights because they don't actually care when you go around and hug the Dutertes and Sisi's of the world and say everything's fine. Um, And when you yourself do to your Justice Department what everybody else does. Um, By the way, I would say the big story right now, and it's really interesting, the big story is we're getting a global lesson in comparison politics because across the world you have leaders who are being essentially held accountable potentially by their publics for corruption for long time uh, service that is no longer needed etc and how different systems deal with that whether it's in Israel or South Africa or the US whether it's parliamentary or presidential will show us how the strength of institutions plays out versus individuals but Gideon the money question for all of our listeners Listeners, Republican, Democrat, whatever, is within letting go Trump, America, and the world. Is it a moment that is a one-off or not? So is, this is, is the question. Nick Burns work five years from now? This is the question that we thought would be answered a year from now. And 
what we really are saying is, um, well, you know what? Check back because we're still not sure. The big picture at one year is we still don't know whether the disruptive force of Trump, the anti-institutionalist, the policy revolutionary and so forth, will win out over the uh, conventionality of the structural process of all the weight of inertia everywhere in the world. And a perfect example of this would be the Iran uh, nuclear deal. Anybody who says right now that they know whether the Iran nuclear deal will succeed or fail is kidding you because what we have is a temporary prolongation of things that are obviously working fine and it should continue, but a president who has pledged not to continue it. And so we all thought that things like the Jerusalem embassy move or NAFTA in previous administrations, those are the kind of things you promised during the campaign and then forgot about in practice. Once in a while, these guys do those kinds of things. And so you never can be sure they're not going to do them. But until now, they haven't actually overturned trade deals. They haven't gone to war. I'm petrified about Korea, but they haven't yet done anything truly crazy on Korea. So what's the biggest issue for American foreign policy? Isolationism or or actually being active? Because most people over the last decade would have said the latter, not the former. So I think the real question now is... Everybody around the world that I talk to recognizes that we're in this truly bizarre historical moment uh, in which the leader of the free world, quote unquote, uh, what used to be called, uh, is somebody who's not particularly fit for the office, not particularly able to uh, carry out its duties. And the real question then is, what is the United States going to do? And so the question here is, and this is the real backdrop Mm -hmm. to the things about John Kelly, it's not the the White House staff secretary have domestic violence thing. It's it's. Is the institutional structure or the adults in the room or the serious people going to constrain the person at the top and allow the world and American well, foreign policy to run properly? Out of time. Gideon Rose, thank you so much. Letting go Trump, America, and the world. I can't say enough about a subscription to Foreign Affairs magazine. Francis Donald with us with Manual Life. Francis, I want to spend a little more time on what inflation means. I mean, for a lot of our listeners, college tuition year over year up 2.2%. Yeah, okay. Elementary and high school tuition up 3.7%, up more than college tuition. And then you get the oddities like tomatoes up 15% year over year inflation. I guess I didn't know that. Or Chair Yellen would talk about wireless telephone services, negative 10%. Huge deflation in in wireless phone service. Why does Chair Yellen focus on wireless phones as a mystery for our central bank? So school prices, tomatoes, cell phones, all things I don't think the Fed can really target at all. Can they, Tom? That's essentially what you're alluding to. Why is the Fed looking at things like this? Well, they're looking for distortions that pull off of the underlying inflationary trend that tells us how much slack is remaining in the economy. You want the number the Fed's probably really looking at? What is that? Is core X shelter. That's the number that they have a little bit more focus on that tells us it's a better signal of where the economy is. And guess what? It's creeping higher. It's 0.8% year over year. That's better than the 0.5% from August 2017. Nowhere near the 
over 1% from the middle of 2016, but that's a better indicator, particularly the services ex-shelter of where the economy is. So many central banks will be clear. We don't look at month-over-month inflation. The Bank of Canada, very clear. If we looked at inflation every month, we'd be looking in the rearview mirror. What is the Fed looking at to understand price pressures? Probably the output gap. And this is what's been so important Mm -hmm. about the last few weeks, as we know from GDP data, the United States has now gone from really critical shift of excess slack, the output gap being open, to output gap being closed. For 10 years, people have been asking me, where is the inflation? And my response for 10 years has been, we will not see inflation until we see the output gap closed. The output gap is now closed as of Q4 of last year. This is a necessary but not sufficient condition to see inflation moving forward. That's what the Fed is watching. Necessary but not sufficient, which is the name of... uh... Francis Donald's boat up in the St. Lawrence Seaway. Uh, Francis, as as I look at the cottage industry of inflation measurements, and I think anybody that follows me knows I've got a huge affection for the simplicity and clarity of the Cleveland CPI for December, not now, 2.4%, which maybe is a lot more how people feel than some of the numbers that are lower. Atlanta, Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, Francis Donald, has a wonderful core sticky CPI excluding shelter. And it's sort of disinflationary over the last five years. You're really calling for a shift there. I'm not calling for a shift there. I think we're still in a a low inflationary type environment, but we're going to see things move up steadily. We're talking about decimal points. It's a process. Inflation is a process. It might be more linear than nonlinear. What the market appears to be doing right now is thinking we're going to get a sudden acceleration in that trend. We just don't buy it. I think some of what we've been seeing people calling for secular stagnation has been conflating the idea of excess slack with secular stagnation. There's some of that going on. But we'd be really fools to well, dismiss the okay. idea that pricing power is strong. You went there, so I'm going to uh, rip up the script and do it. Frances Donald, with her great read of economics, of course, alluding to the former Secretary of Treasury and Harvard President Lawrence Summers and the idea of secular stagnation. I mean, Larry's written some really good essays recently where he said, you know what? We seem to be pulling out of this uh, as we are. And I would suggest Professor Summers would say, great. But why can't we wait till we see the data show that inflation, show that wage growth? How do you respond, Francis Donald, to the age-old and maybe dovish view, why can't we wait to see the data? Because then it's too late and you have too much money chasing too few assets. There is no economist that's going to argue, or very few that are going to say, that the current level of interest rates is appropriate for the U.S. economy. The same could be true for many developed countries right now. The Fed is not trying to fight inflation. The Fed is not afraid of an overheating economy. They're just trying to get us back to neutral, or at least closer to neutral. We're not fighting or afraid or worried. This is just about trying to get to a better normal economy that prevents asset price bubbles, or at least contains them a little bit more than what we have been. Within this is what to do with the market. Now, I know you're not a strategist. You're not going to tell us when to buy the plunge that we've seen recently, but we've certainly consolidated at this level. You're not going to make a call based on one data point of inflation or two data points, including retail sales. But there's a point, as John Writing said earlier today, where you have to say, is this an inflation-driven economy or is it a real growth-driven economy? Francis, which is it? 
Well, uh, I may not be a strategist, but I sit next to a bunch of them, and all I did in the last five minutes was throw in, what are you seeing here, into my IB chats. And the word that keeps coming back is confirming, confirmation. This confirms it for us. So it does appear as though there were some holdouts who had yet to believe that we are seeing a little bit of a move up in inflation. They may be shaking out of the market right now. So that's the word of the day. I will say, however, pay attention to that retail sales number. That retail sales is bothering me over the last half an hour. I'm worried about it. There is some hurricane energy effects here, cars down, building supplies down, uh, gas stations up, but a control group at 0%, that stings your GDP number. You're going to see some well, revisions to GDP from Exactly. That. No, but you're dead on. I'm so glad you went there because I just I didn't notice this until Pim Fox uh, told me the control group is 0.0, but that was an ugly revision from the buoyancy of 0.4 to a control group, well, barely above 0.0, 0.1. This is two months in a row where it hasn't happened. Yeah, it, it's not a happy number. And here we are really thinking about when when market strategists, when our PMs come to economists and, and ask us questions, what they're really trying to get from the economic data is where are we in this economic cycle? And the crux of our view has been you are going to lose out on that consumer. We are getting late cycle and you need business investment to come in. The strength of that business investment is going to determine whether we extend this cycle further or not. Do you see not. an indicator of that or is it just deployment of cash? back to shareholders. So far, it looks like the latter, but we do see investment intentions, business surveys looking very strong. We have seen very good business investment in equipment and the energy patch. I want to see it extend out of the energy patch into broad business investment. But now after I've seen that control group number and that bad revision to last month, I need to see business investment even more. One final question, Francis Donald. Do the Canadians of Montreal, do they have to clean house or do they do a managed rebuild of their horrendous season? Hardest question of the day, Tom. I say we need a rebuild there, but come back to me. I need more data points on that one, too. The data point is they have to blow it up. Francis Donald, thank you so much. From one diehard Montreal Canadiens fan to another, it is ugly in Montreal. She is, of course, in charge of statistical analysis and economics for uh, Manulife, the venerable firm of uh, Montreal. because it's always fun with uh, Mr. Rhodes. But I would suggest anybody that wants to figure out how we move forward in this nation, they may want to look at the summer reading list for Northfield Mount Hermon School, which wanders out to five PDF pages across like 200 books. And the kids get to choose one from each category and that kind of thing. But that's pretty good. That's that's a pretty good place to start with what we need to do is get kids back reading again. Like reading, yeah. Bill Rhodes did long ago and far away. Yes. Well, let me, let me... Gill, Massachusetts. Okay. So, <laughs> you know what? I think we'll just do it. Uh, Bill Rhodes, author of Banker to the World, Leadership Lessons from the Global Frontlines of Global Finance. Leadership. That's a pretty good way to just describe Bill Rhodes because you were a leader in uh, speaking about the equity markets and about inflation. We were speaking to you, I believe it was just last week or no, week two before, week, two weeks ago, two before, weeks ago. before we had the big sell-off in the equity markets. And uh, Bill, I want you to describe maybe for those that didn't hear what you had to say, what did you say and then um, when did you say it? Well, actually, I came out with this piece, uh, an op-ed uh, on the uh, 
18th of January, and I basically pointed out that the uh, market uh, was overbought uh, and uh, that there were some really fundamental problems. Uh, number one, I think that uh, what we're seeing is what I like to call a great accommodation, which the central banks, the Fed started in 2008 to get us out of the Great Recession, has run its course. And uh, I think we're, we're going to be in, in, an, in an era where we see a regular increase in interest rates, because if not, uh, inflation is going to get out of hand. And of course, when people talk about inflation uh, today, they don't remember what we went through under the days of Paul Volcker. So I think the Fed is going to be very sensitive. We have a new head of the Fed, but even Janet Yellen, when she left, was warning people uh, you know, about this possibility. So I think we're going to see four uh, rate increases this year. I think that uh, in addition to uh, the, uh, uh, the winding down of the, uh, of, of the quantitative easing, which got up to almost $4.5 trillion, uh, you might actually see an acceleration of that depending on what happens in, uh, in inflation. And then added to all of this is this tremendous rocket fuel that uh, the administration has pushed in uh, with uh, the tax bill. Uh, in addition, uh, I think we're going to see uh, increasing uh, push with uh, the budget that was announced. So here we are in a period where we were really coming back, uh, finally uh, getting out of uh, right. the Great Recession. And what do we do? We add rocket fuel with those two but things. But Bill Rhodes, with that nice summary of what we got with your rocket fuel and your astrophysics of our political economics, there are a set of assumptions that go along with those beliefs. And one of them is economic growth. Do you believe we have a sustained economic growth to pay for the rocket fuel? I think that's a basic question, uh, Tom, and I have my doubts. <clears throat> I think that, uh, you know, you got the Atlanta Fed saying we're gonna get 5.4% in the first quarter based on the low inventory level. Not clear when you take a look at sales that we saw uh, announced today. Um, but I think we're probably going to reverse the last three years in the first quarter, which were miserable, with something in the order of at least 28 to 3%. But I think for the year, the idea of the supply-siders is that uh, we're going to get a tremendous surge in growth between 3 and 4% uh, to cover, uh, you know, the, uh, the problems caused by this, uh, you know, these tax measures. And, uh, and, uh, and inflationary measures being taken by the government, I think, is too optimistic. So I think we're going we're gonna to have a real problem. The Fed's going to have a real problem of confronting inflation and how it's going to do it. And I think that's going to spread to Europe because I don't think the Germans are going to allow Mario Draghi to continue on with quantitative easing uh, much past, much past uh, September. So I think it's not just going to be a phenomenon in the United States. I'm gonna, I think we're going to start seeing it move over to Europe. And eventually, my friend Kuroda may be forced to cut back a little bit on his uh, stimulus uh, over in uh, Japan. All right. So uh, what do you do with your money other than buy expensive briefcases? And uh, I'm just telling you the joke because, of course, Bill Rhodes always shows up with his most expensive briefcase, which is a brown paper bag. And it's not something fancy from Bloomingdale's across the street. No, no. The, the, and I think it's the same paper bag he's been carrying around for the last 10 years. So that's what we like in a banker, someone who actually knows the value of at least a dollar. Well, I, I start out as a simple banker, and I've never changed. Uh, <clears throat> along the way, uh, that's a problem uh, with banks in general. They, they sort of lost their culture and uh, the trust of the community. 
which hopefully we're, we're getting yeah, back but, now. Okay, but Bill, this is critical. This is the heart of the matter. Have we, and, and this is for everybody out there, whatever they believe in the fiscal affairs, have we lost our culture of prudence, as Robert Samuelson of the Washington Post called it earlier this week? I think that is a real problem, uh, Tom, and I, I think that uh, we've kind of forgotten a lot of this over the last few years um, because we've forgotten, for instance, uh, what my office mate Paul Volcker uh, had to do back in uh, the late 1970s, early 1980s, because we get carried away and we let inflation get out of hand. And of course, you mentioned inflation and everyone laughs. But I think uh, the new head of the Fed is going to have to be very concerned about that because we really are in an overstimulated economy coming at a, a period of time when we, we were finally getting things moving. So I think that uh, the markets are going to be very sensitive uh, to where inflation goes. And I think if you're, if you're planning your businesses, uh, et cetera, you're going to have to take that into account. So what do you do with your money? Well, I think what if you, you have any, well, I think that, uh, you got to make sure that you understand what you're investing in, because one of the major problems we've had over the last few years is we've had this tremendous accommodation, which has pushed a reach and search for yield. And I think people have gone overboard, uh, on investing, uh, because they didn't want to get left behind. And so I think, uh, uh, you know, as Warren Buffett says, you know, when you, <clears throat> when the tide goes out and if you don't have swimming trunks on, you're going to get caught. And I think, unfortunately, a number of people could get caught here. So keep some cash? I think uh, you have to be very balanced and know what you're investing in. But the idea of just a search and reach for yield, every time I've seen it over my whole career, it comes back to haunt you. See the way a banker said, talks about that? He's very, yeah. you know, leaves it in the hands of the customer a little bit. Mr. Rose, thank you so much. Banker uh, to the world. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.